0: Oh man, thank you. Well, family, it's so good to be with you. Lovely to be able to open Scripture together. We're going to be reading from Psalm 120 this morning, which is about, well, it's not quite halfway into the Bible. So if you've got a Bible with you, now is the moment to produce it. If you don't have a Bible, then download one. And whilst you're finding Psalm 120, let me just explain what is uh, going to be happening over the next six weeks or so. Uh, we're in a a weird season at the moment, aren't we, where we're waiting. We're waiting for so many things. We're waiting for a vaccine. We're waiting for lockdown to end. We're waiting in all kinds of ways. But one of the things we're waiting for is Christmas. And uh, I know that some people literally can't wait, and you haven't waited until Christmas. You've already put up your Christmas decorations. I'm not going to mention any names, but I know who you are. And... uh, um, So we're all waiting, and and we're waiting for Christmas, which is the moment that we celebrate God stepping towards us. And it just occurred to us as we were thinking, what to do with this next six weeks or so in the run-up to Christmas? What about if we were to take some time to uh, prepare our hearts for that moment by taking some steps towards him? And uh, the way that we're going to do that is by looking at a particular set of psalms. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. And in a way, they're a carefully, easy for you to say, carefully curated set of songs that are all about that. They're about taking steps towards God. Um, uh, They were actually used for the three main pilgrim festivals that took place in the Jewish calendar. So three times a year, wherever you were in the promised land, you kind of journey towards Jerusalem, uh, and uh, you were journeying towards Jerusalem for the, uh, the Passover feast, for the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And as you were headed towards the temple to meet God, to encounter God, you sang these psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. So that's where we're going. Psalm 120, the very first one, it says this. It's a banger, I can tell you. I don't know if you can say that about Psalms, but I just did. So it says this, I call on the Lord in my distress. And he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. There you go. That's our psalm for today. I'm a fanatical collector of stories. I love stories. I, I, I kind of suck them out of magazines and newspapers and books and all of those kinds of things. But I think my favourite ever story is a story that I found, I think it was in a book by Floyd McClung, and it's about a young man called Sawat. Sawa lived on in a, grew up in a tiny village just on the border between Thailand and Malaysia. And, and as he was growing up as a teenager, he started to get really bored with his surroundings and started to think about heading off into the bright lights of Bangkok. And so eventually he said to his parents, listen, that's where I'm going. He booked a ticket. He packed up all of his things. And then came the day where Sawat and his dad were standing on the station platform. Sawat's dad, tears streaming down his face. And he was saying, son, please don't go. But Sawat said, I'm definitely going. He said, well, in which case, please just know this. As he embraced him, he said, just know this. We love you and we'll be waiting for you. We love you and we'll be waiting for you. And then Sawat gets on the train and uh, he gets into Bangkok and he books into some kind of a hostel. And then he explores Bangkok for several days. He's just amazed by everything that he saw. And then he discovered that uh, the top floors of many of the most exclusive hotels were being used for prostitution. And eventually, he's kind of drawn into this murky, dark world. He gets this job where he's standing out on the street, kind of uh, uh, propositioning tourists and trying to encourage them to come up into the hotel and up into the top floors. Eventually, he becomes this kind of underworld entrepreneur, and he's um, uh, trading in opium and, and in human lives. And... Uh, He he becomes relatively infamous across the whole country for what he's doing, but eventually it comes to a point where he's arrested and he's uh, uh, imprisoned and convicted, and then eventually he's released. He tries to get back into his world again, but no one will speak to him. They believe that he's a police informer, and so he's got no way of generating any income. And so in the end, he finds himself living in this shanty by the side of a, a city rubbish dump. Desperate and hungry, he remembers his dad's words. I'll be waiting for you. And so eventually he thinks, well, maybe, maybe my dad won't mean that anymore. And so he writes him a letter, and in the letter he says, Dad, I wanna come home. I'm." so sorry for the shame that I've brought on the family, Uh, but I want to come home. And so I've booked a train ticket. I'm going to be on the train next Saturday that comes into the village. And I'll totally understand if you don't want anything to do with me. And so just, if you want to see me again, just take a little white ribbon and tie it to the tree on the, uh, just beside the train station and I'll come. Uh, you know, I'll get off the train. But if there's no ribbon on the tree, then I'll just stay on the train and you'll never see, see me or hear from me again. So anyway, Saturday comes, he gets on the train. He's really nervous. And as the train is coming towards the village, he's so nervous, in fact, that he just can't even bear to look when the moment comes. And so he says to the guy opposite, can you just tell me what's on, if there's anything different about the tree by the, by the station when we get there? And so, uh, you know, the, the train gets nearer and nearer. He's so nervous. Eventually the train pulls into the station and he says, well, tell me, is there a ribbon on the tree? Is there a ribbon on the tree? And the guy says, you better look for yourself. And there on the po tree but beside the station, every single twig of every single branch has got, these tiny little white ribbons. It's like a massive tree of white blossom, and there's ribbon wrapped all around the trunk of the tree. And then there's his dad. His dad is dressed from head to foot in white. He's got white shoes, white socks, white trousers, white top, white scarf, white hat. He's got a massive broom in his hand, and he's waving a bedsheet, a massive white bedsheet in his hand, and he's just welcoming him home. His dad had waited. His dad had waited. And that is what God, our Father in heaven, does for us. He waits for us. He waits for us. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he's like. And... I don't know where you are with God. I don't know. The amazing thing is we've had so many people watching this live stream who haven't been in church since childhood or whatever. And so like, you need to know that the whole of the Bible says that that is who God is. He waits for us. He's so kind. He's so gracious. He's so forgiving. The reason I say that story is actually because... Do you know these songs, these Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to Psalm 134, they're homecoming songs. They're the songs that we would sing to recalibrate our hearts and reset our lives as we journey back towards God. And, and um, that's what they were used for. You know, people coming from all the different parts of the known world to come back to God, to come back to the temple, to make their offerings to God. And actually, the scholars say that they were even more relevant after the Babylonian exile. So by that point, because of the shame and the sin of the people, they'd been scattered even further. And they were miles away from God. And there were people who, who had heard of God, but had never known him. And, and they'd... Um, They'd heard of his presence and power, but they'd never experienced it for themselves. And because of their shame and their sin and the the sin and shame of, of their families for generations upon generations, they'd never experienced it for themselves. But suddenly they were invited back to come back to God, to come back to the temple. And so they found these psalms and they began to sing them as they journeyed to make their sacrifices at the temple And amazingly, when they got to the temple, they discovered that there were 15 steps uh, heading up to the court of the Gentiles, right at the very heart of the temple. And so these 15 songs, one song for every step as they made their way towards God. And what we have here, this absolute tune, this absolutely brilliant psalm at the start of this curated songbook, this is like song one, step one of journeying back towards the Lord. And it seems like what, I think what we have here is um, in this very first song, the first verse is looking towards God, upwards and towards God. And then the, from verse two onwards, we're now turning back and we're looking back at where we have been, what we have been doing, what, you know, where we've been living the place that we've been inhabiting. And so that's what we're going to look at very briefly, looking upwards and towards God, and then looking backwards to where we've been. And uh, so firstly, looking forwards, verse one, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. What a cracking start to the songbook. And I think what this amounts to is the most beautiful invitation It's a beautiful invitation. Do you know, one of the really weird things about being a pastor is that there is a photograph of me, like really lovely photograph of me wearing all of my best clothes in pride of place in loads of homes, you know, and and, um, it's like above the fireplace or it's on the coffee table, there's a picture of me looking great. And the reason for that is like no one intended for that to happen. It's just that, you know, if you take a picture of a man and a woman making wedding vows, then I'm just there in the middle between them. And I'm only there in, I'm there in loads and loads of different homes, except one particular home that I know of, and I won't mention any names, Dave Hall, who literally photoshopped me out. <laughs> that is actually true. But one of, the, um, one of the things that I love about weddings is the wedding invitation. You know, I get loads of rubbish junk mail, loads of leaflets. The postman seems to deliver more and more leaflets. I get loads of bills and loads of boring mail. But I love a wedding invitation because it's completely the opposite of that. This is like an invitation that has has been carefully crafted by the particular couple to communicate who they are. Uh, You know, they really want you to come. They've been up all night with a glue gun and cut and Folding cardboard and sticking on ribbons and all of that kind of stuff. It's a beautiful invitation. I think verse 1 of Psalm 120 is a beautiful invitation. Firstly, it's an invitation that's deeply personal. I call on the Lord. Just imagine you're living in a tent in Meshech or Qadar with your, you know, your your wife, your husband, your children, your in-laws, your parents, and then it's decided, okay, let's go, everyone. We're gonna go to Jerusalem. And so, you know, you put the roof box on top of the camel and you pack everything in, everything that you're gonna need for the next few weeks or whatever and you know like whilst you're packing up your family and your worldly possessions to head off towards Jerusalem so is your next door neighbor so is the person opposite everyone's heading to it you know it's like this mass migration thousands of people all going together to arrive at Jerusalem and, um, and yet as they're beginning to sing these songs actually it's not we're all doing this together it's I call on the Lord. You know, these songs that were to remind themselves about what it is that they're doing. And actually, in some ways, more importantly, to teach their kids who'd never been before. This is, this is how it works. And it's like, this is a kind of a we do it all together thing. Yes, this is a kind of a let's all go on a journey. Yes, yes. But actually, every single one of us has to make a decision to choose deliberately, I'm going to call upon the Lord. I don't know whether you've ever done that before. Do you know, I think in this pandemic, where there's so much up in the air, I don't know in our lives whether we've ever had a more important moment where, where it's never been more important than for each one of us to choose to be with God to walk with God. Maybe you've been a Christian for years and years. It is not easy being a Christian right now. Each one of us has to make a choice. I will call on the Lord. That's what I'm gonna do. That's my life choice during this time. There are lots of things I, don't, I can't control. I can control this. I'm gonna call on the Lord. It's deeply personal. The second thing about this invitation is it's carefully targeted. Uh, it seems to me that at the heart of verse one is this incredibly provocative question. And the question is this, what are you going to do with your distress? What are you going to do with your troubles? Where are you going to take them? You know, I've learned over the years that, that, that I can deal with the trouble in my own soul in all kinds of different ways. Like sometimes Taryn will say to me, I've never seen anyone cut the grass with such aggression before. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, or or um, uh, sometimes Saturday mornings, I've discovered this guy on YouTube, who who he bought a, cra- a completely crashed Bentley, and he just you know, and so you can watch like episode after episode of this guy, you know, carefully rebuilding his Bentley. Uh, and Taryn will say to me as I'm watching episode after episode, a whole Saturday morning, she'll be like. And are you thinking about anything in particular right now? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> to, you know, I mean, complete denial about all the things that are going on in my life. And we can, we can actually do all kinds of things to mitigate the trouble, to, to deal with the pain in our own lives. We can um, drink excessively. We can eat junk food. We can watch rubbish on TV. We can gossip. Whatever it is, there are all kinds of things. And so the provocative challenge and the beautiful invitation of this verse is this. Will you bring your distress to the Lord? I call on the Lord in my distress. It's carefully targeted. Thirdly, it's abundantly kind. I call on the Lord in my distress. Do you hear just the heart of that? I call on the Lord in my distress. In other words, come as you are. Don't dry your tears. Don't feel the need to make up your face or comb your hair. Come to the Lord in your distress. I call on the Lord as I am. He's so kind. I think that's a word for some people right now. You don't need to kind of pull yourself together before you bring yourself to God. He wants you to come as you are right now, abundantly kind. And lastly, it's an invitation that's patiently attentive. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Do you know, when I read that, I was a bit frustrated. I was thinking, yeah, but it isn't quite that simple, is it? You know, I call on the Lord. Oh, hi, Lord. You know, got some things going on in my life right now. And then I get this answer immediately back, a spoken word. It Actually, doesn't always work like that, does it? In fact, interestingly enough, this word that's translated as, and he answers me, is, it appears in, in a couple of other places in the Bible. One of them is in the book that we just studied in Jonah. And it's in the exact same tense, you know, it's exactly the same word. Um, and it's the moment where Jonah has gone from one calamitous situation, you know, drowning in the, in the heart of the ocean. And then he's, he's kind of transported to this other pretty disastrous and uncomfortable situation being slowly digested by a fish. And yet there he is in his prayer. He says, I called on the Lord and he answered me. What he's really saying is, God's with me. He's responded. He's, he's present. And actually, what you see is that in some other uh, translations, they they translate that word as he hears me. So whatever it means, it certainly means this. He is deeply attentive to me. He is fully present with me. He's, He's right here. I call on the Lord and he answers me. So um, what a beautiful God-breathed invitation to step towards God, to look up towards God, to bring our troubles. We look up. And as we take a step, actually, then we turn and we look back. Verse 2. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Verse five, woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live in the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. So having taken a step towards God, we, and now look back to where I've been, to the place that I've called home, to the people I've lived amongst and the way that they live I realize now that there's something deeply unsatisfactory about that place, the place I've called home for so long. The truth is I realize now I've tolerated the intolerable in my own life. And I've settled for defeat and for shame and for patterns of sin. I realize that I've used the behaviors and the habits of everyone around me to kind of justify my own life. And now I suddenly realize with horror that the values that they're living with are not the values of the kingdom. You know, it's so easy, isn't it, to behave like a teenager and to basically say, oh, but everyone else is doing it. You know, why can't I do it? And of course, the answer to that is the same that any parent would give to a teenager saying that, which is, do you know, you can do the regular thing with your life, the thing that everyone else is doing, or you can do the right thing. And so actually what happens is as I step towards God, I realize that something about my own life needs to change. On this first step, I'm invited to move towards the city of God and to lift my gaze upwards towards the Lord and then to look back to where I've come from. And the question is, where's home for you now? Where's home for you now? And actually the choice is there's an upward call to a life of cleaner hands and a pure heart to live in and to live out the values of our heavenly city even as we pilgrimage towards it. Why don't we pray?